Good morning. Good morning. Uh, you know, we're going to James chapter 5 today, so you can start finding your ways there. That would be terrific. James chapter 5. We're going to do verses 1 to 6. As we're gathering, um, I want to ask, like, just start thinking through this with me. Have, have you ever trusted in something and had it fail? You've trusted in something and you've had it fail. Who's trusted in their vehicle to get them from point A to B and it has failed? Who's had that experience? Yeah, who's trusted in the stock market, right? You put your, you put your hope in like, hey, that, well, it's up and to the right is what it's supposed to do, so I'm going to play along too, and it didn't do that. Yeah, yeah. You've trusted in those things. You've trusted in that your, you know, mark that your, your quarried limestone will make it to its destination for work on time, but it didn't. There was a truck person driving it that didn't do it right, right? There's things that we trust in that we expect to have happen. Right? I grew up on a farm a third of the time, so I went to northern Oklahoma where my dad lives, and I grew up there, and so I learned that baling wire and duct tape are things that you can generally trust in. They fix a lot of things. They do. It's amazing. Just a couple weeks ago, my dad fixed a canopy with duct tape, he just, and it worked. Um, but those things fail too. Those things fail too. There are lots of things that we trust in, and they fail. This morning, we're going to see a group of people who were trusting in their wealth, in their possessions, in their material things, in their riches, and it's going to fail them if they trust in it for their eternal salvation. So that's where we're going this morning. Let me orient us to where we've been in James, right? As you go through it, we're in James chapter 5, 1 to 6 <clears throat> this morning. And right now we're in the midst of this section in James where he's teaching us that a the effects of true saving faith in a believer is going to show in how they relate to God. It's going to show in how they relate to one another. And in chapter 3, we saw that if they're related to God right, they're going to be listening to his wisdom that comes from above and not earthly demonic wisdom. And in chapter 4, we saw that if they're going to relate to him, they're going to submit to him in humility and they're going to pray to him and ask for what he would provide and be content with that as opposed to fighting and quarreling over selfish desires. Right? We saw that in chapter four, also at the end of it, that we would love one another instead of judging or condemning one another because we placed ourselves in God's seat and his authority as judge and said, no, no, you're doing that wrong or right. But instead, we would submit humbly before God in our life and everything. And Ben took us last week to this idea of being decidedly dependent on any plan that we would ever make, whether it's about work or whether it's about any other thing that you would plan or scheme or design or make a blueprint for and think, yes, that is an excellent plan. But instead, he taught us to pray, Lord, if it's in your will, I will go and do this or do that. And so this morning, we find ourselves in, in another scenario that James is teaching us, and he's going to teach us about the terrifying tragedy of trusting in riches is where we're going. Um, I know I printed those sheets out and I, I am fully aware that they are too small in font and that is my apology to you. So um, yeah, get, them, get, get out the readers, do what you got to do. Uh, but I'll walk, you, I'll walk you through it. I will say afterwards, Dr. Craig has a handout that he's going to give everybody so don't leave here to be prepped for next Sunday. He has a handout for you, so don't leave here without it. He'll find you. He will track you down energetically. So you might as well just make it easy. We'll go ahead and re let's read our text this morning, James chapter 5, 1 to 6, and we will see what James has for us to see 
inspired by the Holy Spirit. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. At the top of your sheets in small tiny letters, the theme for today says, trusting your salvation in earthly measures leads to more and more sin and a just and terrifying outcome. For people taking notes, I'll read it one more time. Trusting your salvation in earthly measures leads to more and more sin and a just and terrifying outcome. And we're gonna see that play out in five truths about folks that trust in riches for their salvation. The first truth we're gonna see is a just judgment from the Lord. The second truth is we're gonna see that those who trust in riches actually hoard their wealth. The third truth is that they commit fraud. The fourth truth is they, they do waste their lives. And the fifth we will see this morning is that they commit murder. That's more and more sin. Let's tackle the first truth together. This is verse one, James chapter five, verse one. And it starts with the phrase, come now, you rich, weep and howl. And that come now is an exclamation point. In the NIV, it actually says, listen up, you rich people. And that's exactly what James is trying to do. He's calling out this group of folks that are living and finding their satisfaction in life, both materially right now and, and personally and physically, but also eternally in their riches. And he says, come now, listen up, you rich. Weep and howl. And that weep and howl is like cry out with howling. Cry out with howling. If you think in your head is like, I'm screaming. And you're like, okay, why is this person screaming? Why is James calling this person like, hey, this is coming towards you? It's a great question. In the LSB, it says, come now, you rich, cry, howling over your miseries that are coming upon you. And that's the state of the rich, is their miseries that are coming upon them. A just judgment is coming. And the tense of that word is, it is close, it is imminent, it is almost here. Later on in our verses, we're gonna see that they're doing this in the last days, which is the time period that we live in the time period post Christ's ascension and before his return. And so Christ is imminently coming back. He's imminently coming to judge. He's gonna make everything right, even those who trust in riches. And so what has caused these miseries? What's their indictment? What's their judgment? It's that they've placed their salvation, they've placed their value on, on all their riches. Like if I have this, if I just have this, it'll be enough. It'll be enough. And they're not seeing the judgment of the Lord coming. They're not setting their sights on righteousness. Or as we'll see in a little bit, they're storing up treasure on earth as opposed to storing up treasure in heaven. And these miseries are coming upon them. So we have to ask ourselves, this is a kind of a different tone that James has used towards his audience. So who is James speaking to? Because he just went from encouraging people to love one another and to not judge his brethren. But he doesn't say my brethren and then encourage us he starts with, come now you rich, weep and howl. So he's talking to a body of people inside the church, same audience, it didn't change. We're still talking to the dispersed people abroad, right, from persecution. But inside these congregations, there are people 
that don't believe, but they've attached themselves to it anyway. They've attached for one reason or another. Maybe it's social. Maybe it's uh, a sense of pride. Maybe it's a sense of tradition from their family. Something has prompted them to be a part of this body, but not in Christ. And they're hanging out there and they're in there. And James is calling them to perk up their ears. He's calling them to listen. He's calling them to pay attention because they're missing it. But yet they're so close because they're in the church, but they're missing it. And we've seen that these people have been in James actually the whole time. We've seen them. In James chapter one, verse eight, they're the double-minded man. In James chapter one, verses 22 to 23, there are those that hear the word, but they don't do it. At the end of James chapter one, there are those that don't bridle their tongue and they have a worthless religion. They've been with us the whole time. In James chapter two, verse 18, it says, someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize you foolish fellow? There it is that faith without works is useless. It's in James chapter three and James chapter four, we see those folks that are there and they've been with us the entire time. And James is calling those people out this morning and saying, hey, you participate in this body, but you're missing the gospel. You're missing the truth. You're living a life that is false. And instead of them continuing, he's asking, well, okay, so he's calling these people out. Is he calling, rhetorically, is he calling them out for judgment? Or is he calling them out for a hope of repentance? And the answer to that is both. He's doing both. He's pronouncing judgment on them because they're living a false hope, which we will see in verses two to six. He's very clear about calling out their heart. But he's also calling them out to the hope of repentance. He's calling them out to the hope that they keep going and they feel this prick of sin and that they realize their sinfulness before the Lord, that they have been living a sinful life they have been judging themselves above everybody else just because of their possessions and that they would repent of their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ, which is the only name under heaven by which we can be saved. And they would place their faith in him and in sincere repentance be welcomed into the flock as a believer. That is his hope this morning. Which brings us into our second truth. We've seen that they've been judged. Our second truth is in verses two to three, which is someone who truly trusts in their wealth and their possessions for everything that they value, they're going to hoard possessions. And so James is gonna continue and say, this is really where your heart is as he continues to try to evoke repentance. He says, your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It's in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. And in verse two, he's talking about your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. So think about that for just a minute. In the riches part, the way in an ancient biblical time in an agrarian society, what they considered rich, they didn't have grocery stores, they didn't have preservation, they didn't have a chest freezer in their garage for the extra stuff that they might eat later. So they stored up in this fear of I'm gonna run out, they would store up food, they would store up grain, they would store up everything, okay. So I get the sense of trying to heap that up a little bit, but they stored it up to the point of what? To the point that those riches rotted, to the point that they were, they were decaying in their storehouses. It means they couldn't eat it fast enough is one thing it means. It also means something else that shows their heart. If you can't eat it fast enough and there's the people all around you, is it likely that there's someone around you that might be in need? Yeah, and if you were thinking generously with your wealth, with your riches, with your possessions, with your excess food, what would you do? 
And you would help them meet their needs. That's what God calls us to do, right? You would help them meet their needs. But instead, no, they kept it and it rotted sitting where it was, unshared. They do the same thing with their garments. Same time period, right? No air conditioning. We kind of feel that. You walk outside, you're like, I wish there was more, right? So yeah, so what would they do? They all had a, a tunic that would keep them warm at night and a, and a robe and they would keep that. And they probably just had one. But the rich had multiple and colors and variants and quality. But what happened to their garments? They sat in the way they stored them and they became moth-eaten. Moths came in, laid their eggs, larvae grew, ate the fabric and they wasted away. This is the heart of the rich. They don't share it. They don't go, hey, I actually have 27 of those tunics. You should have one. No, they just they hoarded it and it wasted away. We see their heart. In verse three, we see the, how they treat their money. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you. That word rust is also translated corroded is a good way to think about it. James knows that pure gold and pure silver don't rust and corrode. Like they don't just melt away. But he's talking about it figuratively in the sense of your money, what you do with your money. It says if, if it could, it was a metal coin and it rusted and corroded to the point that it became useless. And instead of you having used it and sent it somewhere and done something with it, you kept it and you held on to it. And he said, I'm not gonna share it. I trust in this. As long as I have it, I'm okay. And that's false and that's a lie, but that's what they were doing. And then James personifies their wealth and he says, it turns into a witness against you and it will consume your flesh like fire. It's in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. James is telling them that this trust they have in their wealth is gonna be a witness. When God comes imminently in the last days and says, show me what you have done with your life. And they're gonna say, well, I hoarded all this wealth. It's gonna be a witness against them. And that's not the heart of a believer. That's the heart of an unrepentant sinner that placed their faith in that. And they're gonna be judged. And it's gonna consume them like fire. That's a terrifying, terrifying picture of what is what's gonna happen for those that trust in that. Instead of having done exactly what God wants us to do and give it away or to use it for his purposes. And we'll look at that. But they place their false hope in riches. And that in the last days you stored up your treasure is an idea of an exclamation point at the end of that sentence. He's trying to call them like, think about this. He's really urging these people that he's writing this letter to as it passes through the dispersed out of Jerusalem. He says, please start thinking, evaluate your hearts, do it now. Because this time period that you're in is the time to act, not to wait. And right now you're storing up treasure for yourself and you're not storing up treasure for heaven. We know that reference. And he uses, I'll get, as an illustration, we'll see a little bit of it. There's a wealthy farmer illustration out of Luke chapter 12. I just want you to see how this works. It says in Luke chapter 12, verse 15 to 21, he says, and not only live their life, but have more than they would ever need and not be generous, but hoard to the end that it rots and becomes useless. In this life and eternally, let us, oh, I just quoted something wrong. We're gonna consider this illustration um, uh, of Luke chapter 12. That wasn't it, I just got off my notes. This is what he says in Luke chapter 12, verse 15 to 21. He says, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And they said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. 
take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So the, the, the question is, what should we be storing up then? What should we be storing up? And if we go to Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21, Christ says it very clearly. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth, moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And as I studied this, that was really convicting. It's like, what am I placing my satisfaction, my comfort, my, hey, everything's right with the world if in. Is it wealth? Is it possessions? Is it life's going well? Is it, is it those types of things? Or am I thinking back to where we ended in James chapter four? I'm gonna be decidedly dependent on the Lord. I'm gonna pray for him and submit myself to him humbly. So let me ask you, how should we view our possessions? How should we view them? Just from what you know. With a loose hand. Because who gave them to you, Phil? The Lord did. Yeah. How else? That's perfectly right. As a gift. Yeah. Coming straight out of James chapter 1. Give her perfect gifts. They are temporary. Very much so. To share them as a tool to use, right? To share, to, yep. Yeah. That's so exactly right. That's, we use them because God gave them to us for a purpose, right? Our purpose as believers isn't store up treasures on earth. That's not our purpose. But we want to store up treasures to the Lord. MacArthur in his commentary said it this way. He said, nothing more clearly reveals the state of a person's heart than his view of money and material possessions. Many who profess faith in Christ and validate their claim to genuine saving faith through their opulent, indulgent, materialistic lifestyles. A clear indication that they serve wealth, not God. Now, lest we get turned aside, let's look at what scripture teaches on how we should see possessions, right? Let's look at that briefly. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22 says, it is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. So God gives us these gifts and he gives these gifts in different ways. He plans, he gives people abundance in different amounts. In America, if you want to think about it from a relative scale, we're in the top 1% of everything from a wealth perspective. I don't care which person you look at it, which socioeconomic status you look at compared to the rest of the world. You live here, it's just that way. But we don't live across the world, we live here. And so there's ranges. But we need to realize that God has blessed people in different ways. I want you to turn to 1 Timothy 6, because Paul, writing this letter to Timothy, gives us a lot of instruction on how we should view possessions. And he says it with the authority of Scripture. So go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we're going to walk through a few verses here, and we're going to see the teaching about how we should see our possessions before we continue on looking at these truths of those who hoard their wealth. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Starting in verse 6, he says, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Our purpose towards possessions is to be content with what God has provided us. In verse 7, he says, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either, which we talked about. God gives it to us. We didn't make it. Verse eight, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. 
Verse nine, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. The key teaching from this section, verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So he's cautioning against that love of money, finding your satisfaction, finding your, your source of truth and safety there is what is evil, not possessions. Continuing in verse 11, we'll read just a few more. It says, instead, here's our instruction, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called which means hold loosely to this temporal life. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And then jump to verse 17, if you would, please. This is Timothy's direct instruction, or Paul's direct instruction to Timothy. He says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but to fix their hope on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that, which is life indeed. So we looked at it. What is our wealth to be used for, right? That last verse 18, instructing to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. That's what our wealth should be used for. But, but how do we do that? So let's think about it. How do we use possessions to advance God's kingdom? That's one of the ways we can use it. How do we use possessions to advance God's kingdom, to move it forward? How does that happen? Support missionaries. Pray, pray, or go, right? You can support missionaries, but one of the ways is to support them financially. Yes. What are other ways to advance God's kingdom with your material possessions? Not just dollars. Say it again. Support widows and orphans, right? Take care of those around us that are in need. Shows the gospel. Hospitality. Sharing your home, sharing your food, sharing clothing, whatever you have, right? Being holding all these possessions loosely, right? We have a meal train that takes care of people in the church when they need help. Sure, yeah, of course, right? And those things, can those things advance God's kingdom through evangelism too? Can, you, can that be an evangelism tool to get the gospel out? The reason I'm helping you is because I love you like Christ loves you? Yeah, very much so. Very much so they can go out there. You know, you hear stories of folks that, hey, I helped my neighbor. I helped them with a project. I helped them with a meal. I helped them with clothing or, or whatever they needed. Yes, very much so because you love them like Christ would love them. Right? But, we, but how do we give? There's a couple of verses I want to give you. There's a, how do we give? We get out how God has blessed you. In 1 Chronicles 29, 3, we see David's heart. It says, Moreover, in my delight in the house of my God, the treasure I have of gold and silver, I give to the house of my God over and above all that I have already provided for the holy temple. So out of this heart of over and above, right? Paul teaches this to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. He says this, he says, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. 
We have to remember that God is the one that gives us everything anyway. And he just asks, be purposeful and cheerful in your approach. That's how he wants us to see it. Because that's someone who is, I'm gonna submit humbly to the Lord and I'm gonna do the things I need to do based off what he's instructing me to do. And I'm gonna do it cheerfully. Those are the instructions we have, how we see our possessions. That's sending it out to advance God's kingdom. But we also see in 1 Timothy, we see verse five, chapter five, verse eight, to provide for our own family, which may be common sense, but to some it wasn't. But it says, but if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The specific context is taking care of your older generation, the widows that are above you, but extends to your family, right? We do that. We wouldn't short our family. And then we already mentioned the example of providing for others within the church and outside the church. But if we look at the new church in Acts chapter two, verses 42 to 44, you see that they were sharing their possessions to take care of those who are in need. We're holding loosely to those. That's how God would have us to store up treasure in him and as opposed to holding tightly to possessions and storing up treasure on earth. MacArthur says this in his commentary, he says, wealth is to be enjoyed as a blessing from God and used to fulfill his will in meeting needs and advancing the gospel. Those who fail to do that suffer judgment. That's how we should see it. And we've seen a little bit of the heart of those who didn't think this way. Remember, James is calling out this body of people in, in the local churches that are there, that they're, they're in it, but they're not believers. And he's calling them out to have them see their heart. And we've seen that they hoard their wealth. And now we have a proper understanding of how we should see it. But James has more call outs for those in his congregations. And so we're gonna see a third truth and that those who trust in riches commit fraud. This is verse four of James chapter five. You make your way back there. James chapter five, verse four. He says, behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. And so he starts that word with behold. Again, it's an exclamation point. If he were physically present, he would be grabbing them by their lapels and saying, hey, listen, pay, listen up. Just like he did with come now you rich. He's saying, behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields. Remember, this is an agrarian society. They were landowners. They, and they would have day laborers that would come and they would mow their fields because they had more land and more crops than they could actually get to themselves. And it was very common for those to then come in and say, hey, you pay me a daily wage, I'll go in and do work for you for that day. It's super common in that context. And so these day laborers were coming in, they were mowing their fields, but what was this person who trusted in their riches doing? And he says, behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you. The ESV says withheld by you by fraud. It's a fraudulent idea. The, the whole understanding of everybody in that context would have been said, hey, I agreed, I agreed with you to work for you today and you said you'd pay me this amount. And so it's the end of the day and I'm coming to you to get paid. And you're either not there or you're just saying no and you're not gonna pay me. In a day laborer society, what does that put the day laborer into what kind of a position? What do you think? They live in day by day. What can they now not do? Eat. They're so in love with their riches. Not only are they willing to commit fraud, which you might go, oh, well, maybe it's just, maybe they didn't pay him quite as much. No, they withheld it. They didn't pay him. And now this person can't eat. And not just this person, but their family can't eat. Their kids don't eat. Their people starve. They get sick. And if you're a day laborer, and you can't eat and you're going to go, well, maybe they'll pay me the next day. You're going to go work again. 
and then they're not going to pay you again. How many days can you not eat and actually work before this ends in a cycle where you're just going to die? They were literally starving these people. That's the heart of this person. That's the heart, the extent of it, the extreme of it. When you see like that's someone who hoards and trusts in their riches. And this, 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 he, James personifies their, this withholding. He says this withholding by fraud is going to cry out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. And it's rebellion against God Almighty. That Lord of Sabaoth, is, it really translates into the Lord of the armies of the angels and of the hosts of the people Israel. So God is a host and the, and the Lord of all of those armies. And you can think, okay, well, if you think of the system of organization, like, all right, there's people there directly over some people. And then you, this, it reached all the way to the top, all the way to the person in command of everything. We go, okay, so it reached God's ears, right? Well, how does God feel about people that hold back pay and oppress people? Couple, couple um, hints at how God's heart is from Leviticus 19.13. It says, you shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. Because if you hold it, they don't eat. If you hold it, they can't buy, they can't buy clothing. If you hold it, they can't live. Deuteronomy 24, 15 says, you shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets for he is poor and sets his heart on it so that he will not cry against you to the Lord and it becomes sin in you. And then Malachi 3, 5 says, then I will draw near to you for judgment and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages. God's very clear. This entire context of people that we're talking about, where James is writing to, they knew all of that. Without a doubt, they knew all of that. They knew the Old Testament. They'd been taught it. They knew what they were doing. They were in outright rebellion against the Lord Almighty and they didn't care. They were willing to commit fraud and harm their fellow person just to hold on to their wealth. But they don't stop there. Their sin continues. Trusting in riches just builds and builds and builds in their sin. In chapter five, verse five, we see that they actually then waste the life that God has given them. They waste it. Verse five says, you've lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Living this way, it's like, you know, when we read in 1 John, the boastful pride of life is one area of sin that people fall into. These people are the epitome of that. They are pushing that as far as it can go. When Liz says you lived luxuriously on the earth, it's really you've lived softly. You've spent your money on everything that you can possibly spend it on so that your life can be soft. Your life can be easy. Your life can be unimpeded by anything that you would consider hard. That's their heart. That's their intent. Their entire purpose of living is to do that. But not only do they want to live soft, but they've also led a life of wanton pleasure. And that's looking at people that take their wealth and just like Solomon did when he tried to experience all of life, he lived and he said, I'm gonna experience everything that physical life can give me. And they just live all the things they can do. And the context is really of just the sinful pleasures that they could pursue. And they spend their money on that. And they're willing to spend whatever they have to do to have a life like that. They literally waste their entire life. But then that last phrase of chapter five, or chapter five, verse five, is really the saddest. As they do that, and it says, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. 
And that day of slaughter is a reference to judgment, but it said they've fattened their hearts. They've built themselves up. And they're thinking, this is the right way to live. I've done everything I can to build myself up to the extent of what I think good is and what I think right is and what I think people would praise me for and what I think is the right way to do things. See how lost they are? They fatten themselves up for a day of slaughter and they don't even see it coming. They don't, they're missing it. They're missing it. So we have to ask ourselves, if they're missing the entire purpose of what God has set up for people to live, they're missing it. They're blind to it. They're not concerned at all. Then what is the purpose of believers? How would you describe our purpose that God has given us as believers of how we should live? To honor and glorify God God in all that we do. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, yes. What else should we do? What else? Love our neighbor. The second of the two greatest commandments is summarized by Christ, right? What's the first? Yeah, with all of our heart, our soul and mind and strength. We love the Lord was the answer. That's our purpose of how we do it, right? The Westminster Confession is to, to obey God and to enjoy him forever. Westminster Confession, that didn't come out, right? So how do we do that? And so the, I know we know a lot of those answers, right? But I'll make it rhetorical, right? But if we go back to what Ben taught out of the last part of chapter four, I would encourage you to look at that. And, and I've been thinking about that phrase. Ben, thank you for lending me your lesson this. It makes it easy. Is decidedly dependent. Am I living decidedly dependent? Meaning am I going to the Lord and asking for his will and what I'm doing and any decision that I'm making, whether it's about possessions, whether it's about plans, whether it's about service, whether it's about where I'm supposed to go for work or for family, any type of wisdom that I need. Am I being decidedly dependent as I use all that God has given me? Or am I walking in my own arrogance and in my own pride forward and making decisions? And I would encourage you all that if you didn't write it down last week, right, am I decidedly dependent in all the things I think about? Write it down this week. Because it's so true of how we should live before the Lord and how God purposes us as believers. But the rich don't stop there with wasting their lives blindly. They continue. And the culmination of their sin is in verse 6. It says, you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. This idea of condemning is, is, is translated well. It's the idea of judging from chapter four. They place themselves in the seat of judgment and they act in power there. You know, so you gotta have to ask yourself, what kind of a proud heart is willing to stand in God's place and judge? Or something else that they were doing at the same time is not only that, but they were using their wealth to disrupt the flow of justice in their land. They were bribing the judges. They would take their wealth and they would take their power and they would take their prestige and they would influence the courts to get outcomes that benefited them. And remember if, in the context here is that if you're a, a day laborer who's fed up with not getting paid, you would go to the first person that's your first line of defense. Well, that's the elders and the wise people in your village. You'd go there and you'd make your appeal and they would hear you. Okay, and you would expect justice. That was the entire intent of how it should happen. But instead, that person's getting bribed by the rich person and they're saying, no, sorry. And that's where it goes to not only were they condemning and disrupting justice, 
but they were actually then causing the death and suffering of those who were not getting justice, the innocent, the righteous. It's not the first time that James has called them out for this. In chapter two, verse six, when it's talking about partiality in church and showing partiality, he said, but you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? So not only were they bribing justices when appeals came, but they were also bribing the justice system and proactively going and seeking their own way. We see this, an example is it makes me, it made me think of uh, the, the story of King Ahab and Naboth's vineyard. It's First Kings chapter 21. I'll just read the first four verses to give you the context of it as an illustration of how this, this heart of this person works. First Kings chapter 21, it says, now it came about after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is close beside my home and I will give you a better vineyard than it, than it in its place. If you like, I'll give you the price of it in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And if you kick to verse eight, um, I'll read eight to 10, you see what uh, Ahab's wife Jezebel did. So it says, so she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters saying, proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people and seat two worthless men before him and let them testify against him saying, you cursed God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. This is what the rich were doing. This is what someone who has given their life over to wealth and possessions ends up as. Remember the players in 1 Kings 21, King Ahab, was he at a loss for possessions? No, he's the king of Samaria. He should have been king of Samaria, but that's what the Jews did. Okay, so he's at no loss. Okay, he wanted Naboth's vineyard, which was where? It was right next to his house. And why did he want it? For a vegetable garden. Why? Because it's close. Oh, Okay. Now, there's no qualm with saying, hey, I'm going to offer you the fair price. No qualms with that. And, and, and maybe you'll take it. But Naboth said, no, I'm going to keep it. It's my family's land that God has apportioned to my family. I'm keeping it. Okay, that should have been the end. But you see the heart of the rich. Instead, you scheme, you set up worthless men, you make a false accusation of an innocent man, and you murder him. That's the heart, the culmination of the sin that someone who trusts and their wealth and in their riches as their eternal value, which they have none. And it shows us this. It's the culminating sin of those who trust in riches. So we've seen these truths. So let's take a moment and live what we've learned this morning. I'm gonna ask you questions to live what you've learned. So arm yourselves with knowledge and then the ability to speak, right? So if we think about this and we look at what James has taught us, we want to have the correct perspective on riches, have the correct perspective. And if you look at James chapter one, verse 10, which says, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. What's our perspective towards life before God is supposed to be? The key word was humiliation that I just mentioned. I make it as easy as possible. Humility would be the right one to put on. Yeah, we want to be humble before the Lord. If you go to James chapter one, verses 16 to 17, it says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. 
Where do the gifts come from? From the Lord, from above. And what kind of gifts? The good ones, the perfect ones. So not only should we be humble, we should be content in our thinking about what God has provided us because God doesn't vary, God doesn't shift. What God gives us is perfect for what we need for right at the moment. And he doesn't leave us alone. James chapter one, verse 25 says, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. And when you look at James chapter 125, we see if we abide by God's word, we look intently into the perfect law, we live our life by it, then in the end, this man will be blessed in what he does. So that's the correct perspective, humility and wisdom, seeking that out. We should also have the correct preparation to making a decision. I've referenced this a couple of times, but we should be decidedly dependent. So a question I want you to reflect on this morning, you have to ask right now, answer right now, but reflect on it is, what are my decision-making steps when I decide to act? What are my steps? Are my steps, I instantly react and just do whatever I want? Which we all could admit, I make decisions like that. I do that on a daily basis, that happens. You can be, you're in the company of friends. We, we understand, right? Or do I do what James chapter four told me to do? I seek the Lord's will before I start making a decision and I hold loosely to my steps because if, if God corrects me and says, no, no, you're going a little bit further left than you thought, I hold loosely to that and I humbly obey. What are my decision-making steps when I make big decisions and small ones? James chapter four fifteen reminds us, he says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. And then that leads us to then making correct action steps where we're actually living out the effects of true saving faith, where we're praising God for the possessions that he's given us, for the life that he's given us, for salvation that he's given us. We're providing for our family like we reviewed and we're advancing God's kingdom cheerfully, whether it's locally in our, our local body of church, whether it's through missions, whether it's through evangelism opportunities that you're taking in your neighborhoods and around you, or advancing God's kingdom with possessions. Solomon summarized this very well in Ecclesiastes chapter five. He said, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. That was chapter five, verse 10. And if you kick forward verses 18 to 20, he says this, this is the answer. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself and all of one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. And at the very end of Ecclesiastes, he tells us how to think appropriately. Verse, chapter 12, verses 13 to 14, he says, the conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So in conclusion, I ask you just a couple things. To think about two things. As you reflect and take this to heart, I ask you to always maintain the right perspective on your possessions. That's where the rich in our context lost it. They started, they switched it and said, it's, 
that I, I don't see God's teaching, I see only my own selfish heart, I'm gonna feed it. But a believer doesn't have that. So maintain God's perspective about the purpose of your life. And then secondly, always be decidedly dependent regarding your attitude towards possessions and where God has you and regarding your actions that you take in light of what God has provided for you. With that, let's go ahead and pray. And remember, no, I'll say in a second. Let's pray and pray first. This is most important. Lord, we love you very much. We thank you so much for showing us the extreme darkness of the heart of someone who trusts in riches. Uh, Lord, you've shown us this morning that it is a terrifying thing uh, to be in your hands at your imminent return and to only be able to say, I have trusted in the possessions of this life and I have selfishly served myself. I have hoarded wealth, I have hurt the poor, I have committed murder and condemned. What a terrifying place to stand. Lord, thank you for showing us the darkness of sin this morning. Thank you for showing us contrastingly the perfection of your word and the beauty of your gospel. This morning as we've seen that repentance is always, um, repentance is always available, Lord, through your son, Jesus Christ, and through faith in him, we can have a relationship with you that is not based off the principles that we saw with the rich man, but they're based off of serving you and storing up treasure in heaven. Lord, I pray this morning that you would help us to see how we make decisions. You would open our eyes and to see our heart's desires. You'd help us to kill sin where selfishness exists and help us to praise you where it doesn't. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom, just like James said in chapter one, that we ask for wisdom on how to make all all these decisions humbly before you. And Lord, help us to submit before you as we go. We pray this thing in Jesus' name, amen.